Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. We have the privilege this part, this uh, Shabbos of reading Parshas Lech Lecha. We've had an extended break to the Yantif and uh, Baruch Hashem some Simchas. So it's good to be back and appreciate everybody's uh, patience. But we're back with a great Parsha, Parshas Lech Lecha. So we're going to do what we uh, try to do always, which is review the Parsha briefly as an overview and then delve into study, studying some of the Psukim with the Mephoshim, with the commentaries, with, a, um, with an eye on the text itself. So the parsha begins obviously with the famous test of Avraham. We're introduced to Avraham, who um, really one of the biggest questions you could ask. We're not going to spend time on is why does the Torah leave out? It's almost as if Iker Chaser and Asefer. The main part of Avraham's greatness is omitted from the text. You have to turn to the Medrash. You have to turn to what the Rambam writes very eloquently in Hilchos Deus. You learn in Hilchos. You learn from the, the the Rambam about Avraham's background and about Avraham's uh, upbringing and about Avraham's recognition, his discovery of the Almighty, and how he seeks to introduce it to all those around him. And if you look at the text, you just see God calling Avram seemingly very abruptly, very spontaneously. Avram come, Avram goes, and we begin a storyline. Who was Avram? Where does he come from? What's happening in his life? The text omits that. That's one of the biggest questions. Another question which we were just discussing is, if you look at the end of last week's Parsha, we, we tend to look at Parshios divided. We study a Parsha of that week, and we don't see the next Parsha until the next week. But if you read the text of the Torah directly, without taking a break based on the delineation of the Parshios, you'll see that at the end of last week, Avram's father, Terach, already began this journey. Terach, Avram's father, takes Avram and Lot, the nephew, Lot's father, Haran, had died in the fire in Orkazdim, and Sarai Kala, so he takes his daughter-in-law, Sarai, Avram's wife, and they leave Orkazdim, and where are they heading? They're heading to Canaan. And they get to Haran, and they stay there. So why is it some incredible greatness of Avram, go to the land I'm showing you to Eretz Canaan, that journey already began. What do you mean, uproot yourself from your family? He went with his father. So again, that's a discussion not really for now. I will tell you a hint to the answer is, if you look, it says, when it comes to Terach, Haran was a metropolis. Haran was the big city. Haran was a city of great hedonism, material pleasure, physical pleasure, pursuit. And while Terach began a journey to Canaan, it seems from the Pasuk, he gets to Haran on the way, and he never leaves. He gets distracted. He gets absolutely pushed from his uh, destination and he remains in Haran. And the charge of Lach Lecha for Avram is finish what your father started. Don't only begin the journey but get to the destination. Don't only do the first act of courage which is to leave your homeland, the land of your heritage, but finish the act of courage by arriving at the destination that you sought out to to achieve. Anyway, that's the way the, the Parsha begins. Of course, God promises Avram, you're going to be a great nation. Avram comes to Canaan with his wife, with his, with his nephew, with all of his property. With the nefesh asher asu b'charan, what does that mean? The soul that he created in Haran Rashi already tells us that Avram converted the men, Sarah converted the women. Again, the Rambam elaborates when he discusses more in depth the whole development here of, of Avram and Sarah's background. But they introduce the world to ethical monotheism and they don't just keep it to themselves. It's not a discovery they make. And then that they, they keep to themselves, but they stand on a soapbox. They try to help convert others from a life of paganism to a life of ethical monotheism. And they garner a tremendous following. And that following follows them, comes with them all the way to Canaan. 
Avram and Sarah get to Canaan, there's a famine, they're hungry, they go down to Egypt. Avram's worried about Sarah, that she's so beautiful. Again, you have this fascinating conversation which requires more study. He says, you know, I never really realized how beautiful you are until we're headed down to Egypt and I'm taking a look at you. It never occurred to me how gorgeous you are. And now I'm worried that someone else, Paro himself, might uh, solicit you. And therefore he hides Sarah and he lies about Sarah. And uh, the whole episode with, the, with Paro over it, they return to Eretz Yisrael. Avram and Lot part ways because it's an unhealthy, toxic relationship. Avram says, you go where you want and I'll take where, where, where the, uh, the area for me. And then the repetition of the promise, God's promise to Avram about making his children great, his descendants, his offspring, his progeny. You have the war of the kings where Avram gets involved and indeed redeems and saves his nephew Lot who had been captured. Avram is honored by the kings for his great heroism. Uh, God reassures Avram again, and now we have, now, then we have the Brisbane of Sarah. Avram sounds doubtful that God is going to fulfill his promise, and God therefore creates this covenant and ratifies the covenant that he creates. Sarah realizes that here her husband has achieved greatness. He's an amazing theologian, a philosopher, he's a preeminent scholar of the world. He has a following of thousands who've adopted his radical new uh, lifestyle of ethical monotheism. And yet, he has no legacy with all of that because he doesn't have a child. And so, uh, so Sarah suggests, maybe you need to take a, a maidservant, a concubine, a second wife, who can produce for you a child. In which she, she does. Hagar is introduced, they have Yishmael. That's the part we're going to look at more in depth. Um, Avram and Sarah are given new names because of their new role. Avram is given the commandment of bris milah in our parsha, timely for me in this week. Um, and uh, Avram circumcises himself at 99 years old, circumcises Yishmael who's 13 years old, and is told you're going to have another son whom you will circumcise at 8 days old. And that is an overview of our parsha. So let's begin. Sukkim I want to go through this, uh, this week, this year, are looking a little in depth what happens between Avraham and Sarah and the introduction of Hagar. So it's Perak Zion, chapter 16, verse number 1. It says the Torah, Vatomer Sarai el Avraham. Sarai turns to her husband and she says, God has caused me to be clogged up. He has stopped me, has prevented me from conceiving. Come upon my maidservant. Maybe I can build you. Maybe we can be built. Maybe I'll be built from her. In other words, she will conceive and bear a child. And you and I will raise that child. We can create a legacy. She will be the conduit. What happens? Vaishma Avram Lakol Sarai. Avram hears the voice of his wife. Avram hears the voice of his wife. Anything unusual in that Pasuk? Sarah did have prophecy. Sarah was a prophet. She did, but in terms of what? That she would ultimately conceive? Yeah, prophecy is not... You know, prophecy is often is grossly misunderstood. It doesn't mean our ability to tap into the future. Prophecy is not a crystal ball. Prophecy is what God chooses to allow us to see, to experience. God speaks through the voice of the, the mouthpiece of the prophet or reveals aspects of the future to a prophet as he sees fit. But it's not a crystal ball with access to everything that is yet to happen. So it's interesting. Sarai turns to Avram and says, God has held me back. I have an idea. And then the, what does it say? 
Avram says, Avram listens to Sarai. So let's start. Look at Rashi. Says Rashi, um, I'm sorry, you know what? I started at Pasuk Bez. Nobody here corrected me. Go back to Pasuk Alf. Vusarai Eshes Avram Loyaldalo. Sarai, the wife of Avram, did not give birth, did not provide a child. Vela, Shivcha Mitzrish, she had an Egyptian Shivcha whose name was Hagar. Who is this Egyptian maidservant? Says Rashi. Basparo Haisa. She is none other than a princess. She's the daughter of Paro. Kishara, Nisim Shinasul Sarah. When, when, uh, when he saw, when Paro saw the miracles that happened to Sarah, when did he see miracles? In his home. When Avram lies and says Sarah is his sister, and then God reveals and gives a blessing ultimately, and Paro experiences the miracles of this special man, this extraordinary man, Avram, he says to himself, It's better for my daughter to be a maidservant, a lowly maidservant, in the, man, in the home of this incredible man, than to be a prominent woman in any other home. So who is Hagar? She's not some homeless woman on the side of the street. She's not a drug addict, reject, maidservant that Sarah offers to Avram. She's none other than a princess. She is the daughter of, of Paro. So Sarah says, Maybe if they can have a union that produces a child, I can be built through her. So Rashi here in a very harsh way quotes the Pasuk, quotes the Medrash rather, that says that children, continuity is the source of building. One is considered banoi, one is built through children. That is how we create continuity, that's how we create a legacy, that's how we give meaning and purpose to our lives. That's how we achieve immortality. Immortality is achieved through the investment of, of children. You know, I, I, was, I was thinking, um, obviously very uh, reflective right now, thank God with the gift of another child, I was thinking about some of these athletes and celebrities who have re- who've achieved remarkable success, Hall of Fame success, broken records, and they're reaching a you know, an ad- somewhat advanced age, and they're not married, and they don't have children. And what's, like, what's the point of it all? Sure, there's fame and celebrity, and it's exciting, and there's endorsements, and there's money. But if there's no one to pass it on to or to teach or to mentor or to inspire or to share, so one is not banoi. So ulai ibane, Rashi here is, why is Rashi saying that? What is Rashi noticing that none of us noticed? It's a very strange word, ulai ibane. Why, why did Sarah say, maybe I can be built through her? Ibane is binyan, a building. What did Sarah mean? I can be built through Hagar. I would say maybe I can, I can find motherhood I can achieve maternity. I can uh, find happiness through her. I can have a son through her. She doesn't say any of the above. She says, I can be built. And that's why Rashi is quoting the Medrash because she said that specifically. Because the way one creates a building, a structure that lasts is by having children. And that's what Sarah desperately wanted. And through what? Merit can I achieve that immortality by having a child, by creating a legacy, and the merit of bringing my tzara into my home. Right? If you've ever learned Masechus Yevamos, Mishnayis, a co-wife is referred to as a tzara. Why a tzara? Tzadi Reshei. Because to be co-wives is a source of tzaras. To share, to share and to have to feel not exclusive is a source of tzaras. 
And in fact, throughout Tanakh, we find, a, uh, we often find conflict and tension and consternation between co-wives. What's another example? Chana and Penina. They share a husband, Elkanah. Penina has children. Chana does not. We know the story. We read it on Rosh Hashanah. And the Medrash tells us, the verses themselves tell us, that Penina absolutely tortures Chana. Now the Medrash fills in that Penina was torturing Chana in order to inspire her to daven harder. It's a difficult Medrash. Chana wasn't motivated on her own to daven. Being barren and childless was not enough to get Chana going. She needed to be absolutely tortured by her co-wife Penina. Okay, the Medrash is seeking to ascribe noble intent to Penina. But we always find, or we often find, always find, that there is conflict between co-wives. It's called a tsara. So Rashi tells us that Tzara in the merit, you would think she would be quick to say, you're in the outhouse, you stay in the garage. But in the merit of sharing her hagar with her husband, that's what she was tapping into in order to have children. Now, what does it mean, Lakol Sarai? Yochavid, you said, one second, didn't Sarah have Nevoah? So what, look what Rashi says. When Avram listens, Lakol Sarai, now this is also unusual. Again, our purpose, the way we study Parsha, is to try to analyze the text. Analyze the text, each pasuk, pasuk by pasuk, which words are redundant, extraneous, which verb, which adjective, what is, how the, it's structured. So Avram hears Lakol Sarai. It's a very unusual formulation. Why didn't it say... Avram did what Sarah said. The Ramban is going to, about to ask that question. Pasuk doesn't say, Sarah tells Avram, I have an idea. Take Hagar. She'll produce a child. She'll be able to give us a legacy. And what happened? Avram did so. doesn't say that. It says he heard the voice of Sarah. Which almost says, we don't know what he did. We just know he heard the voice of Sarah. So Rashi is also obviously bothered by these words. And Rashi says, what does it mean he heard the voice of Sarah? The Ruach HaKodesh Sheba. In other words, from the fact that it says Avram heard the voice of Sarah, it meant, how did he know it was the right thing to do? Because he knew she had Ruach HaKodesh. So Vayas Cain, if it said Avram did it, it could have meant, Avram thought it was a good idea. Avram concurred. Avram said, great suggestion. From the fact that the verse says, Vaishma Avram it means Avram followed through because he believed this is what God wanted. Not only this is what his wife wanted and what he wanted, but Kol, the voice, is reflective of Ruach Hakodashaba. Because she had divine inspiration, that's what Avram was trusting in embracing her plan. And this is what the Sifse Chachamim writes. It says the Sifse Chachamim, he heard Sarai. Right? Rashi, the Sifse Chachamim, is tapping into a different aspect of the Pasuk. The Ramban says it should have said Vayas Kain. Why does it say altogether he heard her voice? Sifse Chachamim, Rashi saying, why does it have to say Lakol? It could have just said Vayishma Avram. Lesarai. Avram heard his wife. He did what his wife said. Why Lakol? The voice of his wife. He wasn't listening to Sarah. He was listening Lakol Sarah. And what's the coal? The Ruach HaKodesh. He was listening to God who was expressing Himself through Sarah, through Ruach HaKodesh. According to the Ramban, why does it say, Kol Sarah instead of Ayaskin? Look at the Ramban. 
Avram too was desperate for children. He wouldn't have taken Hagar, nor would he have even suggested using Hagar, if not for the permission of Sarai. Even now his intent is not creating his legacy through Hagar. What did he hear? He heard Sarah say she wants to create her legacy through Hagar and he goes along. So that Sarah will essentially have an adopted child. Sarah comes to Avram. So what happens? You have a barrenless couple. You have a barren couple. A childless couple. Avram and Sarah undoubtedly are struggling. Talmud tells us among those the most painful experiences in life are those who struggle with infertility. Undoubtedly they're suffering terribly. There's this option all along of Hagar. But Avram never pursues it, he never suggests it, he never brings it up. Because he doesn't want to cause pain to his wife. Sarah comes and she says, Avram, I have an idea. Let's use Hagar. It'll be your child. I can essentially adopt him as mine and I will have a legacy through her, through Hagar. Says the Ramban, Avram heard the voice of desperation of Sarah. He heard Sarah wanted a child so badly. He heard that this would be her legacy. He wasn't suggesting it would be his. He thought maybe, maybe she will merit, he will merit children in the merit that she, that Sarah is willing to do this extraordinary thing. That act alone will merit their having their own biological children. We'll see in the next passage, Sarai takes Hagar. Even after Sarah had the idea and gave permission, Avram didn't pursue Hagar until Sarah literally took Hagar and put her in bed with Avram. In the next pasuk, let's read it for a moment. Sarai, the wife of Avram, takes Hagar, the Mitzri, as a maidservant. This is after ten years of barrenness, which the Mishnah Yevamas we learn, Ksubas, that ten years of childlessness is cause for divorce, is grounds for a man saying, I must remarry someone else in order to try to have a child. Today, halachically, we don't have time now, but halachically, we don't do this. There's a lot of reasons given. Maybe the halach is only if we have no explanation, but if medically we have an understanding of why they're childless and we have technology or procedures to pursue, then they remain married even after 10 years. We don't, we don't apply or execute this halacha today. But Sarah understands 10 years we haven't had a child, even though we've been living in the land of Israel. And, and Sarai gave her Hagar to Avram, Isha, Lol Isha, to be as a wife. So the Ramban picks up on this. The verse specifically says, Sarai, Eishas Avram, La Avram Isha. Sarai, the wife of Avram, gives Hagar as a wife. Why? Sarah never gave up. She's identified as Sarah, the wife of Avram, when she gives Hagar over to tell us. 
that Sarah didn't give up. She didn't hand Hagar over and then walk away and say, I have no hope, no future with this man. But rather she kept holding on. Hagar would also be a wife, not just a concubine, but a full wife. All of this, the Pasuk tells us to build the esteem of Sarah. Sarah could have been terrible to, to Hagar. Could have appointed her as a concubine, a pilagesh, which is a lower level relationship, a lower status than a wife. But she didn't. She embraced Hagar as a co-wife, appointed her as a wife to Avram, and Lonis Yasha Daito never ever gave up. Held on to her dreams of having a child all her own. Okay. Continuing. Look at the Svarno. Svarno has a third interpretation of what it means, the Kol Sarai. It says the Svarno, he wanted to make sure that she meant what she said. He didn't just listen to Sarai, he listened to Kol Sarai. You know, in communication between a husband and wife, you know, the whole Mars and Venus book and, and countless books on, on relationships, communication, describe that you can't listen to the words of your spouse. How many fights have occurred because a woman says... When I said yes, you were supposed to understand that I meant no. When I said no, how could you not understand that I meant yes? So that's what's going on over here, says the Svarna. Avram, Sarah makes what is a bold, what is a very radical suggestion. You know what? I'm not producing a child. I have this maidservant. She happens to be a princess. She's the daughter of Paro. Have a child through her. Avram's taking a close look at her. He's listening very carefully. Is she just saying that? Is this a test? Am I supposed to say, I could never do that. I'd rather go childless the rest of my life with you than have another woman. He's asking himself, what does this woman mean? What is she saying? Says this far now. Therefore, Lakol Sarai, when he understands that her authentic, genuine desire, her voice which reflects her real what she means, that's what Avram hears, and only then is he willing to go forward. So we saw three interpretations of what seems to be a peculiar way for the Pasuk to tell us that Avram consents. It could have said, Vayas Cain. Sarah tells Avram, take Hagar. Avram could have said, great, good idea. Pasuk could have said, Avram did thus. It doesn't. It says, Avram heard the first voice of his wife. Why does it say it is this? Said Rashi to tell us when he heard the call, it meant Ruach HaKodesh he wasn't sure this was a great idea. If it was a, her original idea, maybe it's not great. If it's his original idea, maybe it's not great. But when he heard, not only, not only did he hear Vaishma Sarai, but Vaishma Kol Sarai, says Rashi, when he heard the voice means the Ruach HaKodesh, that her divine inspiration, he knew this was a good idea. The Ramban says, what does it mean, Vaishma Lakol Sarai? What it means is he wouldn't do this without her permission. He could have had this idea long ago. The reason he was going forward with this now is not because he never had the idea earlier, but because now it had her consent. Now she initiated. Now it was what she wanted. Says the Sforno, the reason it says Kol Sarai, because he wanted to get a proper read on what his wife really wanted. Okay, let's continue. So Avram comes upon Hagar 
and she conceives. Hagar sees that she has conceived. Hagar recognizes, obviously, that she is pregnant. And when she saw that, so Gvirta, her Gveret, who's her Gveret? Who is her master? Sarai. Vatekal becomes lowered, becomes diminished. Beineha in her eyes. In her eyes. Not only did Hagar see that she became pregnant, but says Rashi, Mibia Rishona, quoting the Medrash. She becomes pregnant from the very first act of intimacy between Avraham and herself. So she understands what? She understands that she says to herself, This Sarah, her hidden essence, is not consistent with her revealed. She walks around this matriarch, this mother, this teacher who has converted thousands of women, this major spokesperson. She goes on the Scotland Residence Tour. She's written books. She's on Barnes and Nobles. She's on talk shows. This Sarah projects herself like she's a tzaddikess. But she hasn't had children all these years. But I, who am supposedly the lowly servant, one time, first shot, it's all it took. So Hagar looks and she says to herself, this Sarah on the pedestal, she's nothing. In truth, she has no merits. More than 10 years she's trying and garnished. And me? First shot. And what's the result? She gets arrogant. It goes to her head. It transforms the way she looks at Sarah. And Sarah becomes diminished in her eyes. She begins to look down. She begins to look down on Sarah. Yes? Not yet up to know. Oh, that's a great point. So the biblical word we have for intimacy, for 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 intercourse, is is ladas, is to know. It's an unusual in biblical Hebrew we don't have a word for for sexual relations. That's partly because Biblical Hebrew is a Lashon Naki, Lashon Nakiya. We don't have words to reflect acts that people can use in a, would, would use in a lewd or inappropriate way. But it also reflects something, the essence of what that uh, act is. Because that act can be something which is base, animalistic, purely for the purpose of pleasure, or for the purpose even of conception, but with no act of, of intimacy. It can be an empty act that lacks intimacy. The word vayeda, to know, is the sexual relations between a husband and wife is the ultimate, ultimate knowledge. It's not appropriate to talk about today or in this audience, in, in other audiences with men, when we do our Tars and Mishpacha review, I speak about it. But what is love? Love is knowledge. The Rambam describes Avas Hashem, the second parak of Hilchos Yisodei Torah. The Rambam describes the mitzvah to love God. Rambam Maimonides does not describe it as an emotion. He describes it as a, a intellectual pursuit. One is obligated to know God. And when one knows, knows God, one can't help but love God. To know God is to love God. And that same approach can be projected on human relationships as well. That love is the result of knowing the other knowing what makes them tick, 
knowing how they think, knowing their goodness, their kindness, their philosophy of life, knowing who they are. And when one achieves access to that knowledge of the other, one is drawn to the other. And that's the Rambam's understanding of love. It's not very romantic, and it's not full of emotion. And it doesn't happen at first sight, and you don't fall into it. But when you get to know someone, and you see something about them that is so attractive, their priorities, their values, their goodness, their kindness, who they are, what makes them tick, one is drawn to that, and that is how the Rambam understands love. Love is knowledge. And if you take that to the next level, when, when a husband and a wife are together intimately, that is the highest level of knowledge a human being can have of another. Literally, one is entirely exposed to the other. Exposed in ways that hopefully is an exclusive arrangement that they're not exposed to anyone else like that. And that's how one expresses and feels that love and bonds and connects with another in a way which they share with no one else. And so the biblical Hebrew word for that act of intimacy is vayeda, to know. To know the other and to allow them to know you because that is love. Love is knowledge of the other. And Yechavid points out correctly, it does not describe here vayeda Avram as Hagar, really Ishto, because he marries her. It's Vayavo. He comes upon her. It's pragmatic. It's functional. Now, if you're looking at this whole episode from the perspective of Hagar, it's not very fair to her. It would be very interesting to analyze this entire section from the perspective of Hagar. She's a princess who grows up in the palace. She has the world. Egypt is her domain. She is the queen, going to be the queen of Egypt, the daughter of Paro. She gives it all up to be in the house of this man, this extraordinary man of Avraham. Avram's wife asks her to be Avram's co-wife. And mind you, this is a time where it's not unusual to have multiple wives. Bigamy or polygamy is not the exception, it's the norm. She exceeds, she agrees. But Avram never fully embraces her. Vayavo. He uses her to produce a child, so to say. And she must sense that. And then we have the next, the rest of the story that's about to unfold. But if you look at it from the perspective of Hagar, it's perhaps very, very unfair. But the Pasuk tells us, she conceived. Pasuk Sarai comes to Avram and she says, I am angry. My anger is upon you. An interesting word. My outrage, my Hamas. Same word we saw in last week's Parsha. The world was performing Hamas. Sarah says to Avram, Hamasi Alecha, I'm outraged. I'm furious. I gave you my maidservant. She saw she was pregnant. I am diminished. I am lowered. She is condescending towards me. May God judge between me and you, Avram. I'm furious with you. Oh, now if you're Avram, what do you answer her? If you're Avram, you look at her and you say, Are you out of your mind? This was your idea. You did this. She got pregnant. Angry? You're entitled to be. Angry at me? Are you out of your mind? Is that what Avram says? No. Take her. Here she is. Do with her what you want. Sarah tortures her. 
afflicts her, not physically, obviously, but she's essentially mean to her. And she achieves her goal when Hagar runs away. Why is Sarah treating Avram that way? Why does Avram react that way? And where did Hagar go? And where did Hagar go? So if you look in, P- in Pasuk Dalad, the Balaturim, of Yaakov ben Asher writes, you'll notice the word harasa appeared twice. Hagar, Avram came upon Hagar, she conceived Atera ki harasa. She saw she had become pregnant. And then again in the next Pasuk, when Sarah is telling the whole story to Avram, he says, Hagar saw that she had become pregnant. Says the Balaturim, Beis Pa'am and Beparsha, twice it says she got pregnant. Mikan Remez, the Perish Rashi, Sheikhnisa Ba'ayan Hara Vihipila, the Chazra Venis Abra. That first pregnancy, Sarah placed an Ayan Hara on her, she lost the child. And then the second, it says Harasa, a second time, she conceived a second time because uh, she had to recover from the Ayan Hara and conceive. Part of Sarah having tortured Hagar is that she lost that first child. Isn't it out of character? Absolutely. Let's look at Rashi. Chamasi Alecha, Chamasa Asui Li, Alecha Animatil Haonesh. The Hamas that has been done to me, I'm placing the punishment on you. So, how is Rashi reinterpreting? Not Hamasi Alecha, I am angry at you. But Hamasi, my Hamas, Alecha. It's your fault. What does it mean, my Hamas? What's the word Hamas mean? What? Hamas is Gezel. Right? That was last week's Parsha. What was Hamas? Hamas. Rashi quoted the Medrash. That despite the Arayos, they were already saturated with promiscuity, licentiousness. It was the fact that they didn't respect each other's property. It was Gezel. So, Hamas is, is to, to have no boundaries. To be stolen. So that's what Sarah says. Hamasi. That which I have been robbed. Allah, it's because of you. What did Sarah mean, I've been robbed? I've been robbed of a child. I'm barren. And now look, this woman conceived on the first shot. She's holding it over my head. I'm, my pain is compounded. And Hamasi... So again, the way we read the Pasuk simply, Hamasi Alecha, I am, and the way Art Scroll translates, if you look at Art Scroll, outrage. Rashi understands Hamasi, my Hamas, my outrage, or that which I have been robbed is on you. How? Says Rashi, When you Avram Davind, all you thought about was yourself. You asked God to provide you with a child. You should have davened for both of us. You davened for your legacy, for you to have a child. You should have davened for both of us together, and I would have conceived. And second of all, why am I holding you accountable? Because you see Hagar. She's walking around with her nose in the air. She's condescending towards me. She's obnoxious towards me. She's arrogant towards me. And what are you doing about it, Avram? Nothing. You're quiet. You're silent. So Hamasi, the fact that I am feeling this way, the outrage against me, Alecha. It's on your head. It's because of you. It's because of you. He couldn't see that before. What do you mean? 
Shouldn't anticipate that this was going to happen? No, this was meant to be. This was part of her prophecy that this was meant to be. Correct. Avram doesn't react and say, you know what? It's not right. Let me meet with her. I'm going to work this out. Let me get the two of you in a room. We're going to meet with a therapist. He withdraws. Again, this is very indicative of many men. He says, do what you want. Uh, you know, I'm not dealing with it. You're angry. You're emotional. Do what you want. Take care of her. That's what she wanted. That's what you want. Do what you want. This is what you wanted altogether. Now do what you want. Who is bothered by this? The Orachayim. Orachayim is a long comment here. Why is Sarah directing her outrage at Avram? And if she's furious at Hagar for treating her that way, Why isn't Sarah yelling at Hagar? Why didn't Sarah reject Hagar, exile Hagar, before Avram gave the suggestion? Why is she pouring her outrage at Avram? Avram as if Avram looked guilty. He looks guilty as if to say, you know what, you're right. This was wrong, I'm sorry. Get rid of her, exile her, do what you want with her. Why is he as if conceding guilt and saying do what you want with her instead of saying... What's your beef? What are you fighting with me? What are you yelling at me? What did I do wrong? And the Yerachayim here develops a long answer, a technical answer, a halachic answer. What was Hagar's status? Shivcha, co-wife, Sarah, Hagar, Avram. It's a very technical answer. To me, it doesn't fully satisfy the question. The questions are more compelling than the answer. But why is Sarah directing her anger at Avram? Why is Avram allowing himself to be the recipient of the anger and seeming to concede guilt? And why doesn't he intervene and do something? Why does he withdraw and say, do this on your own? So what happens? Sarah tortures her. Vate'aneha. Inui. He makes Hagar's life uncomfortable. He makes Hagar's life highly unpleasant. Look at the Sfarno. Vate'aneha Sarai. Kedeshetakir shehimishu bedes. Velotavaza odes gvirta. Now, Sarah ascribes, uh, the Sfarno rather ascribes, a noble intent on Sarah. Sarah is not looking to torture Hagar. I mean, it's, it's another question. How could Sarah Imenu, a tzaddikis, an incredible woman who had a candle lit from week to week and had the source of Isa, who had bread and food ready for any guest who might come, who had a, a, a cloud over the tent that, that showed the holiness and the sanctity. How could this righteous woman, who likely didn't have a mean bone in her body, where did, she come, where did it come from that she could torture her co-wife? That she could torture Hagar? So says the Sforno, it wasn't that she tortured her. It was that she put her in her place. Sarah sought to remind Hagar, Don't forget who you are and who I am. Don't forget you serve me. Stop embarrassing, humiliating. Stop trying to place yourself above me. I am the Gveret and you are the Shifcha. She was trying to restore the order rather than viewing it in some way as if she was trying to torture her in some inappropriate way. Says the Ramban, however, in a very, very bold statement, says the Ramban, Chata imenu bi'inu hazeh. Sarah did a chait. Says the Ramban, 
Sarah was wrong. And you know who else was wrong? Avram. That he allowed and encouraged and empowered Sarah to do this. The Rabban here makes an unbelievable comment. You know why we have radical Islam, suicide bombers, para Adam today? Says the Ramban, who understands and was familiar with radical Islam. I mean, not the term radical Islam the way we talk, but the Ramban, Rav Moshe ben Nachmanides, lived in the 12th century where? Spain, and then Israel, Tzfat. Says the Ramban, we suffer to today that Hagar merited a son who was a para Adam, which we'll get to in a moment, that Hagar's son would torture Sarah's son until the end of time. Yishmael and his offspring would torture Yitzchak and his offspring. Why? Because Sarah tortured Hagar. Is that an unbelievable comment? Now, we don't have time. We could get into the whole question of what right do we have to criticize the Avos and Imahos? Are the matriarchs and patriarchs, are they the untouchables? Are they off limits? Are we allowed to criticize them or do we have to see them as pure and good? There are essentially three schools of thought in the Rishonim and the early commentators and the Achronim and the later commentators. There's what we'll call the traditionalist camp who sees the Avos and Imos as perfect beings. Literally perfect. Any seeming imperfections are really imperfections in us and we have to struggle to reinterpret them to understand how what they did was right. And you see that certainly in contemporary or recent Achronim, it was the approach of Rav Dessler and Rav Schwab and I would say much of the so-called Haredi world is to see the Yavos and Imos as untouchable. They are perfect, we're not allowed to criticize. And then you have an extreme opposite position which allows us to read Sefer Bracious, like it's, a, like it's a novel in Borders, Barnes and Nobles. And we can have a book club about it. And we can ascribe all kinds of intent and all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of descriptions and, and wrongdoing. And I think this way, way, way too liberal and flexible with these extraordinary people, the Avos and Imos, who are in many ways categorically different than we are, who live in a different plane than us. And then there's the healthy middle of the road, which is, I think, what our Rav Shonim and Mephorshim took, and I think is right, which is to say that they were incredible people, endowed with a level of divine inspiration, who achieved remarkable accomplishments in life, who are deserving of our awe, who are deserving of our reverence. And yet, when the Psukim lead us to conclude that there is a mistake that we should learn from, then that's the intent. Ein nikriyotsi mide pshuto. You can't take the text out of its literal meaning. And I've, we've spoken about this other times and we could speak for hours about it. But here the Ramban, in one of his first comments, where he does this, the Ramban does this in a few ways. He did it also, did it also about Avram and Sarah in Egypt. The Ramban also says what Avram did was wrong. But Avram sa- the Ramban says, what Sarah did in, in torturing Hagar was wrong. And we pay for it until today. Which is an incredible insight of the Ramban as well. Okay, so continuing. So what happens? Hagar runs away. Hagar runs away. And an angel comes and discovers Hagar near a stream of water in the desert. Which is in this particular place on the way to 
Shur. At the spring on the road to Shur. So Hagar uh, says, uh, he says to Hagar, he says, Hagar, where are you come from? And, and where are you going? What's going on here? And she says, she replies, I am running away from my, my, uh, I can't translate, Giveret. I'm running away from my boss. Uh, Sorry. Go home. Go back. And allow yourself to be tortured. You will have many, many offspring. This is where the Ramban gets it from because it seems like the Malach is saying, go back, endure the struggle, and in the merit of your suffering, you will have, you will have many, many progeny that can't be counted. You will become, conceive and have a child. What do you mean? I thought she was pregnant already. So again, this is also where we have the tradition that she miscarried that first child that she had from the first time she was with Avram. And she had to go back and get pregnant again. You will call his name Yishmael because God has heard your, your call. Okay? So, so Hagar runs away. She's davening specifically next to the water. By the way, this is a source of a tradition that we have that it's very auspicious to daven near water, near flowing water, for another time. And the, the angel comes and has this conversation. What does he mean? Where do you come from? Where are you going? Says Rashi, Of course the angel knew where she, where she came from. Why did he ask? That's how he started the conversation. He wanted her to confess that she was running away from Sarah. So how did he get her to say it? He said, where'd you come from? Says the Sforno, Now, Rashi says, means the Malach was saying, he was just using it as small talk to get the conversation going. Where are you coming from? With the hope that Sarah's going to open up. I'm coming from running away from... Uh, Sahagar's going to open up. I'm running away from this miserable woman who's torturing me, Sarah. Sforno says, that's not what the Malach meant. What the Malach was saying is something more subtle. Klomar, Habiti Where are you coming from? And where are you going? Where are you running away from? You're going to leave a righteous home, a holy home. You're leaving the home of Avram. And where are you running to? To Chutzlaretz? To a land of impurity? To a place that is Tameh? To a place that's filled with Rishayim? Where are you coming from and where are you going? So Rashi understands that it's meaningless small talk meant to begin the conversation to get Hagar to open up. Svarno understands it not only not as meaningless small talk, but as a powerful nuanced message. The Malach was saying... Where are you leaving? What are you, crazy? You're running away from that home? That's where you belong. And where are you running to? You think it's better to go to a, a place of Rishayim? Rather, Shuvi al-Gvirtech, go back. Says the Ramban, Shuvi al-Gvirtech, go back and allow yourself v'hisani. Tziva osola shuvi l'kabel alem emshoaz gvirtech. Go back and accept the dominion of Sarah. Remez ki lo seitzei l'chavshim imena ki b'nei Sarah yimshel b'zara l'olam. What the Malach was saying was, you could spend your life trying to run away, but the Jewish people will always have dominion over you. 
Her offspring, Sarah's offspring, Sarah, you can't run away. You, Yishmael, you, Hagar, you, Muslim world, Arab world, you can never run away. The Jews will remain God's chosen people. Jewish exceptionalism, the land of Israel, are right. Verse 12 contradicts it. Why? And so, okay, we'll get to it one second. We'll see that verse in a moment. So that's how the Ramban understands. Shuvi is not just a strategy. You're going to die here in the desert. Go back. Don't run away from home. Let out, you know, suck it up. Let it go. No, it's not just a strategy. The Ramban says the angel was telling Hagar, "You can't run away from your destiny." And the destiny is that Israel. You'll never be free of Sarah. That ultimately, at the end of days, the destiny is that the children of Sarah, Yitzchak, and his offspring will rule Bizarah, Hagar's offspring, Le'olam. Forget, forever. So what happens? Indeed, she has this son. The Malach predicts you're going to have a son named Yishmal because God heard your voice. It says Pasuk Yidbeis, and he is going to be a wild man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And over all of his brothers shall he dwell. I know Alex, that's your question. Hold off for a second. And against all of his brothers shall he dwell. This is not a very flowery description of who Yishmael is. He's a para adam. He's a wild man. Now if you take pride in being wild... Because I was wondering, in fact, I tried to Google it, look it up this morning. How do Arabs view this Pasuk? How do they interpret this? And they recognize the Bible. How do they understand this verse? That their progenitor, Yishmael, is described as a para-adam. Not very flattering. Now, first of all, those words, very interesting. In Hebrew, very different than English, in English we say a great man. But how would you say, how would you say a, a good child? In English you say he's a good child. How would you say it in Hebrew? What's on the little kiddush cups that we're getting now? What does it say? It doesn't say tov yelad. In English you say good boy. In Hebrew you say boy who's good. The subject comes before the adjective in Hebrew. In English the adjective then the subject. Good boy. In Hebrew the subject yelad and then the adjective tov. He's a yelad tov. He's an adam gadol. It doesn't say he's a gadol adam. He's a great man. It says he's an adam. He's a man whose gadol is great. Good. So now translate the word pere adam. It should say he's a adam pere. Yeled tov. Adam gadol. Adam gadol. Yeled tov. Adam pere. Why does it say pere adam? Which is the adjective and which is the subject? Pere is the subject. It's his essence. He's a wild animal. And the adjective is Adam in the guise of a man. You hear that insight? It's unbelievable. I saw it in a number of places, the Rosh Hashiva of Karen Biavna, of Mati Greenberg, but I saw it many others say it. He's a para Adam. Understand, not Yelatov, Adam Gadol, Adam Pera. It's not that, yeah, Yishmal is a man, but he's wild. No, he's a wild animal, and the adjective is who resembles a man. That's who Yishmal is. Powerful, right? What does it mean? His hand will be in everything and everybody will have their hand in him. Says Rashi, list him. He's going to be a thief and a robber. He doesn't respect boundaries. He'll take what doesn't belong to him. 
What does it mean everyone will have a hand in him? Everyone will hate him. He'll be the adversary of the world because he doesn't respect boundaries. And what does it mean that he will rule over everyone? It means he will multiply and have great numbers. He will spread throughout the Middle East. He will try to take over Europe to make it an, an, a, an Arab continent. He will have children, children in wild and crazy numbers. Isn't it amazing? As Pesukim were written thousands of years ago and Rashi 2,000 years ago and we're seeing it all come true. How does Unklus understand it? Unklus understands it as Unklus understands it as the economy, economical, financial. Financially, he will de- you will be dependent on him and he will be dependent on you. And I was thinking, is that prediction not also true? What's produced in the Middle East? Who has, who's in charge of oil? On the one hand, we depend on him. How much of our foreign um, no, our foreign policy is dictated by oil? We don't have the freedom to objectively determine our foreign policy. Yadobakol. The whole world's foreign policy or policy towards the Middle East is dictated by oil. But Yad Kolbo, as Unclus predicts, he is also Yadzrichonlei. He will need us. Why? Because when you make sanctions and you say we're not buying that oil, he's in trouble. Amazing how predictive this is. So Hagar hears all this from the angel and she calls the place, this is a place where God saw. Um so she calls it the name she calls the place the name of Hashem you are the God of vision for she said could I have seen even here after having sinned between these two places is a place called the well of the living one appearing to me because Hagar felt God spoke to her but indeed she gave birth right now a second child she conceives and gives birth Avram calls by the way did Hagar whisper to him you need to call him Yishmael because the king, angel told me did Avram arrive in this name on his own it's a discussion here among the Mephoshim but he's named Yishmael Avram is 86 years old when they have this child Avram is 86 years old 86 years old um, the Mephoshim here get more in depth about what does it mean Pere Adam the Pirkei de Rebbe tells us that only two people have God's name in their name Yisrael and Yishmael. And that's the eternal battle. Pirkei de Rebeliezer already predicts. Yishmael and Yisrael. But there's a major difference between Yishmael and Yisrael. Yaakov's name ultimately becomes Yisrael. We are Bnei Yisrael, Klal Yisrael. And that's our identity. That's who we are. We are the children of Yisrael. Where does the word Yisrael come from? What's Yisrael? Yashar El. Our goal, our destiny, is to straighten out the world in the name of El, in the name of God. Yashar, 
to take God's vision, His values, and to bring it to the world. Yishmael, on the other hand, doesn't come... Um, Yishmael, on the other hand, is... Um, is not to straighten out the world, but that the world force the world to listen, to be dominant over the world, to force the world to listen. That's the battle of Yisrael. We who are trying to introduce a code of ethics and values and morality to the world, and Yishmael, who literally believe that the world must subscribe to their view, Yishma, the world must listen, and if not, there will be consequences. If not, there will be consequences. It's interesting, the Radar of David Luria explains the name Yishma was given because God heard the voice of Hagar and the voice of the lad. But Yishma is, which tense? Yishmael, Yishma. His name was not Shamael, God heard. His name is Yishmael, which is a future tense. Which is the future tense. Because he will play a role in the future of the world. In the future of the world. What? <coughs> to hear, to listen. Refresh explains that what does it mean, para Adam? A wild donkey? A wild donkey refuses to accept discipline and a yoke, but rather it wants to be free. No boundaries. Like a wild donkey, the Pasuk in Yermia, like a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness. So therefore his hand is against everyone, everyone's hand is against him. When the rest of the world is aligned to a certain value system, and certain rules, and certain order, he is a para-adam, he's a wild donkey. He refuses to have order. He refuses to have rules. He wants to be wild. And therefore by definition, he is aligned against the world and the world against him. So again, there's wish we had more time to, uh, to get into this in detail but that is the, the eternal battle between Yisrael and Yishmael that begins in our Parsha says the Ramban it begins because Sarah mistreated Hagar had Sarah treated Hagar properly we might have all gotten along but the fighting that we continue to have until today and, and at two different views of the world we can't be naive but two different world views continues because of today that Yishmael's origins and I hate to sound so harsh is not Adam Pere and until the world understands that I'll end with this editorial until the world understands that radical Islam fundamentalist Islam is not they are other human beings who happen to be living radically and we need to change them but they are Pere Adam they are wild animals who the adjective is human beings until we understand that there is no negotiating there's no changing them. There's no influencing them. All we can do is cut out the cancer that they represent and allow the Arab and Muslim world who are, and there are many who are, um, share values with us, who, who equally want us to rid them from the world. This is the, the value system of para Adam rather than Adam para, and this is the destiny that uh, has been handed to us. Have a great week, a great Shabbos. Thank you.